Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. Here is an excerpt taken from the Dayton Daily News, dated December 26th, 1926. In a few days, the Star of India, reminder of bygone sailing days, will be taken on a little coastwise cruise from her quiet mooring in San Francisco Bay down to San Diego. Then the one word, fini, will be written in the logbook and her sailing days will be at an end. It will mean the retirement of what seamen hold to be the most famous sailing vessel afloat. She will be anchored in a tiny inland ocean, a feature in a proposed five-acre zoological garden in San Diego. This little coastwise voyage means far more to the average sailor than the layman realizes. The sailor still has that inherited feel of the sea. He delights in Viking stories and anything that sails before the wind enthuses him. He knows his ships as a turfman knows his horses, and records count for as much with the sailor as with the lover of fleetness in the equine world. The older sailors along the Pacific coast delight in pointing out that the keel of the Star of India was laid down 63 years ago by Gilson and Company of Ramsey, Scotland. She was christened Euterpe for the English-Australian trade and old waterfront captains at San Francisco recall her tall mast stenciled against the skyline in those days when the Golden Gate never closed on a processional of white sails. Now, she is to be rescued from slow disintegration in some hidden cove off the Pacific coast. A place of honor has been assigned her in what is expected to someday prove one of the most interesting spots in America. Glass tanks will replace the bunks on which slept the hardened men who for half a century braved the elements of seven seas. The Star of India will become an aquarium. Even though forever beached and her sails furled for all time, she will still be a part of the sea. Except that's not what happened at all. So let's head to San Diego and find out what became of the Star of India. I'm Amy Bruni, and welcome to Haunted Road. Some might call the Star of India a historic trade ship, the most cursed boat in the water. In its 159 years of sailing, the ship has been trapped in the ice in Alaska and run aground in Hawaii and has seen cyclones, collisions with other ships, and a crew mutiny that ended in 17 men being sentenced to hard labor. But others might call it the luckiest ship ever built. Through all these cataclysmic events, the Star of India survived. In fact, she's still sailing today. Whether she's sailing with icy-handed ghosts of sailors who died aboard, though, is up for debate. There are rumors of strange apparitions and moving objects below her decks. Maybe it's because of all the tragic deaths aboard, or maybe it's because the ship is the oldest actively sailing boat in the world. When she was first built, the Star of India had a different name and a different purpose. She was also a marvel of her time, an iron-holed ship in an era when most boats were constructed of wood. 
Relatively small, the boat measures 205 feet long by 35 feet wide and has three masts. Originally called the Euterpe after the Greek muse of music, the ship was built in 1863 in the Isle of Man, an island in the Irish Sea between Great Britain and Ireland. In its early sailings, the Euterpe was used to sail jute from India, or at least that's what she was supposed to do. Her first two sailings were nearly disastrous, filled with so much calamity that she nearly sank and lost all her crew. The Euterpe's first sailing left Liverpool on January 9, 1864 under the command of Captain William Storey. Almost immediately after setting sail, disaster struck. In the middle of the night, the Euterpe collided with an unlit Spanish brig off the coast of Wales. The crash destroyed the jib boom. For you non-sailing folk out there like me, that's the large extension off the bow that helps the sails maintain a well-projected shape to catch the wind and speed up the ship. The damage was so extensive that 17 of the ship's 30 crew members refused to continue working until the ship turned into port for repairs. Here's where that mutiny comes in. According to British sailing history site Mighty Seas, the Euterpe put into Holyhead, Wales on the 15th, and these men were tried by local magistrates, each being condemned to prison for 14 days with hard labor, after an expert witness stated that the repairs could easily have been made at sea. After five days of repairs, the ship embarked again on January 20th, this time with more than half the original crew replaced, arriving in Calcutta around May 20th. Her second sailing was no more peaceful. After having successfully sailed from England to India and secured a new load of cargo, the Euterpe departed India and was caught in a cyclone in the Bay of Bengal. This time, she lost her topmasts and barely made it back to port. Just after, on August 7, 1866, Captain Story died from what the BBC described as an unknown tropical disease and was buried at sea. With all that bad energy attached to the ship, it's no surprise her original owners sold her after that voyage. After changing hands again in 1871, the Euterpe took on a different kind of cargo, people. In the years that followed, she made 21 trips around the world, bringing immigrants to new lands in search of better lives. Most of the passengers were from the United Kingdom heading to New Zealand, though she also made voyages to California, Chile, and Australia. But true to the Euterpe's history, those voyages were challenging. The Maritime Museum of San Diego, where the Star of India is now docked, says of that time, it was rugged voyaging, with the little iron ship battling through terrific gales. The ship's log describes the vessel laboring and rolling in a most distressing manner during those storms. At the shortest, a voyage to New Zealand took 100 days and 143 days for its longest trip. Both the crew and the passengers suffered during these difficult voyages. Everyone ate a measly diet of hardtack, which is a dense hard biscuit, and salt junk, which is dried salted beef or pork. Many suffered from mal de mer, a particular kind of seasickness caused by rolling waves, characterized by nausea and dizziness, and other maladies caused by months cooped up below deck. They were a tough lot, the museum describes, drawn from the working classes of England, Ireland, and Scotland, and most went on to prosper in New Zealand. Many babies were born to immigrants on these voyages, including one given the middle name Euterpe and one partially named after Captain Theo E. Phillips. Many people also died, though not as many as you might assume based on how difficult some of the sailings were. But there were significant losses. Seamen died of consumption, dysentery, and pneumonia. One had a seizure and fell from a mast to his death. Another was accidentally crushed to death by his crewmates. 
A crewman was in the chain locker where the anchor chain is stored where he shouldn't have been and he became stuck. As his mates brought in the anchor to prepare to sail, the noisy machinery masked the sound of the screams of the trapped victim as he was crushed by the enormously heavy chain. Child passengers were especially vulnerable. Babies were stillborn on the ship, infants perished, and families lost very young children more than once. One of the most tragic losses befell Emily and Charles Braid from Middlesex, England, who were traveling on the Euterpe with their four children. On the six-month voyage, two of the kids, eight-year-old Emily and two-year-old Jesse, passed away. Another family faced a similarly horrific situation. Mary and Thomas Osborne traveled aboard the Euterpe with their nine children, five sons and four daughters. Four-year-old George died at sea, followed by infant Thomas Jr. Mary gave birth to a baby girl aboard the ship, but the newborn passed away shortly after. The Journal of San Diego History wrote about a collection of diaries and letters donated by New Zealanders descended from passengers on the Euterpe. The journal describes these letters by saying, They tell us of yards and sails riven by shrieking gales, of mountainous seas and vast icebergs, of standing off and on before barren iron-bound coasts, of the immigrants' hunger and their battles with shipwrats and each other, of men swept off the bowsprit into the churnings of the sea, of a captain's gory suicide, and of the great joy and relief of all hands on sighting land. Their words are the stark testimony of those who sought new lives against all odds, braving hazards men would think impossible today. In 1901, the ship was sold again, purchased by the Alaska Packer Association to service the state's salmon canneries. For over 20 years, she carried fishermen and cannery workers as well as coal and other supplies from Oakland, California to Alaska, and would return laden with canned salmon. It was during this time that the Euterpe became the Star of India, so named to be consistent with the rest of the association's fleet. In 1926, the Star of India was steered toward another new path. A group of friends in San Diego bartered for the boat, aiming to build a museum and aquarium around her. The project was sidelined because of the Great Depression and World War II, and the ship lay dormant until 1957, when renovations finally started. Though they took a long time to complete, in 1976, the Star of India was put to sea again. Now moored at the Maritime Museum of San Diego, the Star of India is a floating history lesson, welcoming visitors to walk her decks and descend below to see what life would have been like on the ship. Up until 2018, she made one single annual sail a year with a crew of volunteers from the museum who trained all year to be able to operate the Star of India on her day-long departure from her mooring. The museum, though, still describes her as an active sailing ship. In addition to all of that, she holds many distinctions. She's on the National Register of Historic Places and is designated a National Historic Landmark. She's the fourth oldest ship in the United States and the oldest ironhold merchant ship still afloat. She's also the oldest ship in the world still sailing regularly. Unlike many other preserved or restored ships, her hull, cabins, and equipment are all largely original. Maybe it's because so much of the ship is still original that there are so many rumors of hauntings and strange activities aboard the Star of India. One such story comes from the story of John Campbell, a teenage stowaway who snuck his way into the crew in 1884. Shortly after being put to work, Campbell was high in the rigging and lost his footing, falling 100 feet to the deck below. Both his legs were crushed, but Campbell survived three long days before he died and was buried at sea. 
Visitors who are near the mast Campbell fell from will sometimes report feeling the touch of a cold hand. In the ship's galley, where the food was prepared, people still report smelling freshly baked bread, even though it's been nearly a century since anything was baked in that kitchen. Visitors have also claimed to have seen pots and pans above the stove moving, even though the ship is sitting calmly in the water. The chain locker, where the crew member was crushed to death by equipment, is said to be a paranormally active spot, and the sailors' quarters are also plagued with spiritual activity after witnessing much death and suffering. Crewmen who were sick or injured spent their last days in that area, and visitors report feeling cold spots in those areas and being overcome with residual fear and sadness in the space. To talk more about the hauntings on board the Star of India, I've called in my old friend, you might know him, Britt Griffith. Britt and I go way back, way, way back, and we once starred on TV's Ghost Hunters together. He was the first person who told me of the Star of India, and after having investigated it multiple times, he's got some crazy stories to tell. That's coming up after the break. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, so I am currently on the line with one of my oldest, dearest friends. And I don't mean like old. I mean like we've been friends for a very long time. <laughs> Did you just call me old? I Well, I was trying to not call you old, and then it just kind of... <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, but I mean, you're not old, clearly. I mean, my oldest friend is in like, we go way, 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 way back, like pre-TV, pre-Ghost Hunters. You were the one that really introduced me to the Star of India. And I know you investigated it quite a bit. So I was like, I'm going to bring Brit. This is my chance to bring Brit on. So Brit Griffith is a Ghost Hunters alumni paranormal investigator, like I said, very dear friend. And we have basically, I mean, I feel like our two teams way back in the day, like you were working on a Southern California team. I was on a Northern California team and we were all like TAPS family teams. And oh my God. <laughs> well, well, but, but actually, honestly, Amy, we, we, we were on teams before ghost hunters even hit the air in October of 2004. Oh yeah. So many people think I, did the paranormal because I was on TV. And the reality was we were doing this long before that show was on the air. Absolutely. And what I loved is that our teams worked together. Well, so because we were NorCal, you were SoCal, we would come together for like the central California cases. Yes, Fresno. Fresno, <laughs> we did, California. We did a lot of Fresno and Bakersfield and Clovis. I remember we investigated like this crazy Mexican restaurant once. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> Actually, there's a story on that one. Okay, so anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I love to share stories. And so let me tell you, I do know Britt very well. And when Britt does something, Britt does not do something halfway. Britt goes all in. <laughs> and so as you became a paranormal investigator, you bought and designed and researched every single piece of like paranormal 
technical research equipment you could get your hands on. That's how you ended up on GH as like helping with all the tech. And so I remember the first time I met Britt, he pulled up in literally an ambulance that he bought (laughs) filled with ghost gear. And I was like, who is this guy? Right. And (laughs) so at first you were like, this dude's weird. I was like, and then you had a hearse too, which you did not use for the ghost gear, but you had, and I was like, all right, this guy is off his rocker, but I will never forget you when we were investigating that Mexican restaurant, you were like, you know, let's all like carpool. I think we all stayed at like a local hotel or something. We carpooled. And so I rode in the ambulance and I sat in the back and Uh I buckled my seatbelt and I was like, this is such a novelty. This is so cool, whatever. And then we get there and I'm like, I can't get my seatbelt off. I'm like, my seatbelt is not, my seatbelt's not coming undone. And I'm like sitting there, I'm kind of struggling with it. And then the door opens and there's Britt and he's got a camera and he's like, Amy, what's going on? You got a problem? What? Oh, are you stuck? And I'm like, I'm stuck in my seatbelt. Like, and you wouldn't help me. You just kept filming me. <laughs> and so then fast forward to like a year. So he has this video of me. So fast forward to a year or two later, we're on the Queen Mary for like, I think it was a Dave Schrader event. Jason yes. and Grant from Ghost Hunters are lecturing and we were dear friends and I was helping them with their podcast at the time. And so they're lecturing and they call me into the lecture hall and they're like introducing me like, hey, this is Amy. She's our producer for our podcast. And they're like, Amy, oh, we wanted to show you something. And they played the video of me stuck in the ambulance in front of hundreds of people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it was fun times. Yeah, that was the good old days. (laughs) (laughs) But we had some great times. And that ambulance was very convenient because it carried all the equipment and it gave us a place to sit outside of the location and not in the weather. Oh, totally. It was like the it was like our taps van, basically. But I actually felt like the ambulance was kind of more conducive to that because it had all these different compartments. So and you were very organized with it all. And so obviously there were a lot of, you know, Ghostbusters jokes made at our expense. But we are very used to that by now. So, yes. That's part for the course. If we're not getting the Ghostbusters joke, then we're doing something wrong. Yeah. yeah, And and to be honest with you, I wish we had Ghostbusters paychecks because then we wouldn't have to work for a living. That's very true. So, but that's okay. It's okay. I think we're, we're good. We're good. We've had, we had the experiences. So, okay. So tell me, do you like, when did you first start investigating the star of India and how did that come about? So the team that I was on, obviously we were Southern California and the leader of our team actually lived in San Diego and he had a relationship with the manager or somebody who had something to do with that maritime museum because they have like seven, eight ships down there now. And uh, they had always had ghost stories from the night watchman. They always had a hard time keeping night security on those ships because not only the Star of India that's there, but that Berkeley ship is there. And then there was a Russian submarine that was there and all three of them are haunted. And so the night manager, this and this was right about the first season of Ghost Hunters, which gave the manager enough courage to actually talk about it. Because, I mean, most people don't realize, but before Ghost Hunters came on the air, talking about the paranormal was a, was a hush-hush thing or you were crazy. And trying to get people to mm-hmm. let us into buildings was a pain because they would just laugh at us. But Ghost Hunters happened. So the manager knew that Dave was into the paranormal world. And he finally reached out to Dave and said, hey, you know, we just had another night security guy quit because of ghosts 
which I don't believe in, but you know, I know you're into it. You think you can come out with your team and blah, blah, blah. And that's how we got in there was because they couldn't keep their night security. They kept losing employees and reached out to Dave. And Dave was like, yeah, sure. And we went down and did it. And I mean, the first night we were there back then before ghost hunters, when we would go to a place, the spirit world wasn't used to being acknowledged or reached out to, or like we were doing, trying to make contact. Most of the time, the spirit world would be seen or heard. People would freak and run. But the star of India, the first night we were there, we had activity. We had interaction. We had K2 hits. We had EVP. We had, it was like right up the bat, it was active, which was really cool because normally it takes a couple nights for the other side, whatever we're dealing with, to get used to us reaching out to them. And then them going, oh, I guess we can kind of reach out back. And then the evidence collecting starts, really. It normally takes a couple of days mm-hmm. to get warmed up. Today, now it's like, it's almost like the spirit world expects to be talked to almost. So it's a little different now. Yeah, no, that actually makes sense because I feel like you guys were probably the first ones to actually investigate the ship. And there's been paranormal reports coming out of there for a very long time. The history is very interesting. It's had many different incarnations. So it makes sense that it would be very haunted. But I'm just guessing that those spirits, you know, had gone decades just kind of trying to get attention or trying to get someone to reach out to them. And then finally, you guys get there. And so yeah, it makes sense that right off the bat, they would start trying to interact. Yeah. And well, see, you did, obviously you did the ghost hunters investigations, but I, I can't remember, did you go there with your team on on your own or was that, was your experience no. the, the show? No, it was just when we went with ghost hunters, but we were there. I feel like we were there for three nights because we were also doing the Berkeley next door. And so we were just like, normally we were there for a couple nights with GH or one night, but I think we were there for, I remember being in San Diego for quite a while for those cases. Yeah. We were there two and a half weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And so I do remember it very distinctly. And I remember hearing footsteps. I remember seeing a shadow figure downstairs. And this was one of the first cases that They So I had already investigated in Alameda and in Clovis, and I thought I was going back to work in my project manager job. And they were like, hey, want to go to San Diego? So (laughs) I was like, I guess so. So this was like, I want to say my third or fourth case. It's not the easiest place to investigate because it's downtown. It's on the water and it's an old ship. It makes a lot of noises, but it's steel hold or whatever. So it's not like a just a wooden ship creaking and stuff. So you do have some control, but still it was a challenge. And I remember thinking at the time, I was like, how are we going to do this? But we did it. And, and it worked out. It yes, was we great. did it. Mm-hmm. And you are right. It is a, I think it's cast iron, a steel hole, right. which is the only reason why that ship is around today. Because at the time, most of those ships were made of wood and then that rots. But the only reason that ship still afloat today, still sails today, it's 162 years old, is because the hull was made so thick of steel. And that's yeah. why we, got, we get to experience it today. Uh, most people don't realize it, but back then, the ships were made of wood. Because it was the most economical way to do it. But those ships, you know, they don't last 160 years. Like, you know, Star of India is 160 years old. And the only reason was because the original owners paid the extra money to have that extra thick steel hole. And she's still around today. I mean, she's literally Coast Guard certified 162 years later, the world's oldest selling ship on the planet, which is really kind of cool. And we got to investigate it and look for ghosts. I know. And that was one of those kind of surreal moments for me, too, where I was like, oh, my gosh, we're investigating this ship. And I actually went back to San Diego recently just for a stopover when we were coming back from a vacation in Hawaii. 
And we stayed the night there and I showed it to my daughter and I was like, that was one of my first cases on Ghost Hunters. <laughs> like, but it's beautiful. Like it, she just stands, they, they light her up and it, like she's definitely getting the accolades she deserves. But I don't know that everybody fully realizes like what is going on in there. It is very creepy. I do remember distinctly the footsteps are a big one. And I know you had experienced, that was one of the things you told me about before we even investigated there for Ghost Hunters was the footstep situation. Now, do you remember what you experienced there with footsteps? Because I do, but you should probably tell the story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, I was working with Jay and Grant, but we hear footsteps all the time and we hear ghostly sounds and we hear a lot of door shutting and and whatnot. But what, what blows my mind about the Star of India, and this actually happened on tape, you can go to the show and watch it, we heard the footsteps. We were in the in-between deck. They call it the tween deck, which is a really low ceiling deck, kind of the captain's quarters and whatnot. And we heard the footsteps. And I, and I put my hands on this, what was the ceiling for me, but the floor for the top deck. And I could feel them walking towards me. And it was like, it's like they were distant. And as you hear them, they're, they're soft, they get louder, and then they get soft again. Well, think of that as you put your hands on the floor or the ceiling. And it was like soft, harder, 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 hard, right on the top of me, and then soft again as it went over me. And for me, it was like, holy crap. I I felt that. Not only did I hear that, I felt that. And then it spurred a thousand more questions of, so this thing has mass that it can actually impact the wood and vibrate the wood to where I can feel it. So there's so there's mass there. So does that mean this ghost could, you know, uh, move an object? Oh, well, maybe that's how they're doing it. Can the ghost hurt somebody like, you know, punch, roll, push, whatever. It, it was so many questions that blew my mind. And then when we finally went up top to see what was up top, it was the path that the wheel man would walk to go to the original Star of India wheel. It's moved now. It's not where it originally was at. But back in the day, that footpath and where it stopped was right at the original wheelhouse for the Star of India, which makes perfect sense. So we had this amazing experience that we could hear, that we could feel, and then it actually logically made sense for that activity to be where it was at. And that's the 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 neat, the, the really cool, above par, awesome thing about the Star of India is the activity lines up with what was going on back in the day, even though it's kind of changed a little bit. Yeah, and that was one of the first times that it kind of dawned on me, like, there are different kinds of footsteps you can experience as an investigator because that's when we started using geophones. Now, geophones are a device that will light up when they sense vibration. And so sometimes you'll hear footsteps and you'll just hear footsteps and there's no vibration. They're just kind of like these phantom footsteps. But other times you'll hear footsteps and no one is there and they will come like they will happen and you'll hear a creaking of floorboards or you'll you'll actually feel the floor kind of moving as though someone is walking towards you and that's what you experienced there but I don't think before that I had kind of realized that there was a difference or even knew to look for a difference. I don't know necessarily what that means either as far as like, what does that mean for that spirit? If a spirit can manifest enough to make something move is that a stronger spirit or is that more of an intelligent spirit versus just kind of phantom footsteps that don't affect the surroundings? You know, these are all questions that come up. And so something like that, we get very excited about. <laughs> and I remember all of us being like, what is happening? And also we went back and we checked the DVR. We had, it was very easy to cover the Star of India because it's not a yes. huge 
uh, vessel. And so we were able to like make sure we had every, um, deck covered with the camera and there was no one up there when that happened. No, there was not. And the other cool thing was, is that when Grant went up to recreate it, it felt exactly the same. Right. Now, do you remember what the night watchmen were experiencing specifically that was making them quit by, by chance? It was visual. It was seeing stuff, uh, shadows, ghosty type figures, and it was uh, sounds. It was audible talking sounds and chains rattling. Yeah, I mean, that that makes sense. And it's, <laughs> I always, we hear from night watchmen or, or security guards quite often because they're there in the dead of night when everything's quiet. And I can't imagine signing on for that job and, and what kind of surprises you get in a place like the Star of India. Now, what other experiences have you either had there or have you heard of having, or I'm sorry, what other experiences have you had? <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> what other experiences have you had there or have you heard of other people having there well the other thing that i mean when we were there for the show for the people that want to go watch the show i mean there was those shadows that were happening that we actually documented on camera the you know the shadow getting in between the the light and and the camera so the light would dim out and that we were we were seeing with our eyes and the camera documented it and we know no one was there because as skilled investigators we're smart enough to experience the activity take it all in and then immediately get to the area and just try to debunk it. And so we were able to get in the area. There's no one there, just shadow movement going on. And I don't know if this is just uh, science of the motion of the ocean or whatever, but do you remember that, you know, the, the ropes hanging with the sandbags and then there would be like four of them lined up and only one rope sandbag would be swinging while the other three were still still perfectly still not moving at all. I mean, what was that all about? Why would just one sandbag on a rope hanging rock and the other three that are next to it not rock what is that all about i don't know yeah i don't know either i mean that could be movement of course but it also when the ship's docked i guess it is moving a little bit now remind me and if i get this wrong we'll just cut this was the star of india what that what had the the popping shrimp underneath it or was that yes. the burger yes <laughs> yes I just remember being deep in the bottom of this ship and there are these weird shrimp. And so these are the things you have to deal with as a paranormal investigator. There were these, these popping shrimp. And I went down there and I was like, what is happening to this? I thought the thing was sinking, but they all night just popped so loudly. And if you didn't know what those were, I don't know what you would think was happening or what you would think you were experiencing. I mean, and that, you know, again, part of being an investigator, having to discern between, you know, popping shrimp and ghosts. But I mean, I do think that when you're investigating a place like that, you do have to deal with extraordinary circumstances. (laughs) Yes. My local team, we had investigated it before. We knew about that. So we let Jane Grant know so that but I don't think they told you guys because they want you to experience it first. Or did you know when you were going down there? I can't remember how that rolled out. Oh, I had out, no but, idea. Oh, yeah, no idea. Okay, so they let you go in blind and then they explained it. But yeah, we knew about that ahead of time. And that was the nice The nice thing about the show is some of the, some of the places we went were kind of pre-screened for us so we could rule a bunch of stuff out and not waste time so we could look for actual activity. But the cool thing about that popping shrimp that most people don't know is the popping sound. It's something in it, the tail, the foot, I don't know, something in it. But it's moving, it's breaking this, uh, the speed of sound. So that's what that pop sound is. Whatever's in it is going so fast, it's breaking the sound barrier. 
So bizarre. That is the only place I've ever experienced the popping shrimp, and I've never experienced it since. But yeah, it makes perfect sense that they would not have told me. I barely knew I was going to that investigation. I just kind of appeared in San Diego one day, and I was like, I guess I'm. this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, and here you are. <laughs> I mean, I knew I'd be looking for ghosts. I just didn't know. I, I kind of just assumed it would be like, oh, I'll just do a few episodes of this show, Ghost Hunters. Yeah, and, and then I never went home again. So yeah, I, I do think there's just so much lore around uh, ships and their ghosts. And I almost feel like that adds to the activity because I do think that sailors and, and people who spend a lot of their life on the water are just particularly superstitious. And they do put a lot of stock in kind of the spiritual side of what they do. And do you think that's why the Star of India still has so much going on? I think there's a lot to the Star of India, and there's there's stuff. Okay, I'm gonna start with the happy stuff first. So, a sailor, the ship to a sailor is its is his mother, and the reason that you know the lore, the 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 superstition is you never have a a woman on a on a ship back then, is because the only woman in that sailor's life is supposed to be the ship, not another woman running around the decks, because then that creates strife among the men, etc. But the but to a sailor, they want to be in the ocean. They want to be with their woman, which is their ship. And that's why when they die, if you have a, if we have a choice to go where we want to go, a sailor would probably pick their ship. That's where they want to go. But the Star of India did 20-something trips around the world before the late 1880s. And that was in the human immigrant trade. They brought families over, immigrant families. They started bringing them from all over. Like that was the business of the ship. And so there would be entire families there, including children. And there were babies born on that ship. And I feel like, I don't think any of us can understand today. Well, most of us cannot understand today the desperation of kind of going into the unknown and getting on a ship like that with your entire family and just hoping you make it to the other side. And they ate terribly and it was miserable like absolutely miserable and people did die on board people were very sick not as many people died on board as i think people would assume under those conditions but that de i feel like that desperation leads to some sort of manifestation of energy whether or not it is them there like in their um conscious state or just that bit of them that was holding on to so much hope in that ship. Like I, I would love to get back there eventually and do like a more kind of a, a longer investigation and find out more about who is actually there, but a lot of emotion and it makes complete yeah. sense why it would be haunted. Do you think it's possible that like a location like the star of India, where you have so many people going through there and so many uh, highly emotional experiences happening, whether it's terror or love, of mm -hmm. the ship, but that that random energy that's kind of floating around that it can kind of connect to each other and then make coalesce all of its energy from the various other spirits that are there, then to be able to do those footsteps or to make that shadow appear or make that voice sound. I mean, could you think that the spirit world can work on its side, work together to then send a signal to our side? I think that that kind of emotion can even create ghosts, you know, not necessarily like, but I do think that it does become something over time. And then if you have people touring it every day and kind of revisiting those experiences and bringing it up again and again, or talking about the hauntings again and again, like I do feel like that kind of either keeps it 
alive or kind of awakens it. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they have things going on now. I know they have not, I think they haven't really done a lot of investigations. I haven't heard a lot about ghost tours or anything going on there, but I do hear of it as being a, a haunted spot. Whenever I'm in San Diego, people are like, go to the Star of India, go to the Whaley House. You know, they know it's haunted. I just, I can't help but wonder if that has something to do with it. Because you just, you do not have ships like that still in existence that yeah. have that went through that same history. Yeah, no, you don't. And I, I do know that around the Halloween time, they do do a haunted tour. I have seen that, but it's it's not like an investigation. It's more of a, a guided tour with docents mm. telling tall tales and entertaining the crowd type of thing. But you're all right. I mean, yeah. there, at least at least once a week, I get a message from somebody on the socials. Have you been to the Haunted Star of India? <laughs> you're like, uh, a few times. <laughs> yeah, it's lore is out there and you are right. And, and maybe we, our energy about that ship and people that go to that ship looking for the ghost that that our collective energy is feeding the spirit side's energy almost like they could plug into us and then they make happen what they make happen which is is cool and scary at the same time well it wouldn't surprise me one bit well hopefully they will invite us back soon and and yeah kindred spirits that would be fabulous i would love to go to san diego so star of india if you're listening we're looking for cases so <laughs> if there's anyone there <laughs> but i mean aside from aside from that it has been lovely talking with you as always i do appreciate you taking the time i know this interview was not easy because i'm currently in europe and so the time change and everything has been bonkers but thank you for sticking with me and chatting about old times and the very haunted star of india so hopefully we can get back there soon that'd be amazing i will watch that episode for sure well, thank you again. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll see each other again soon. So I hope you and the family are well. Absolutely. They are. And same to you. Safe travels. I can't wait uh, for your season premiere. Obviously, the Star of India holds a special place in my heart, having been one of the first ever cases I did on Ghost Hunters. While I definitely investigated the paranormal prior to my appearance on your TV screens, those early years of GH actually hold a lot of nostalgia for me. That aside, the Star of India is one of those strange dichotomies in a tourist world. You have kids happily skipping below deck, where people once pinned all their hopes and dreams, barely surviving, just trying to make a better life. You have her beautiful silhouette, a backdrop, against the iconic San Diego waterfront, with many probably walking past, not knowing what secrets and energy the wood and steel holds deep in its bones. Hopefully, the spirits there have found their way, following the star that was always meant to guide them. I'm Amy Bruni, and this was Haunted Road. Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Menke. Haunted Road is hosted and written by me, Amy Bruni. Additional research by Taylor Hagerdorn. The show is edited and produced by Rima El-Kayali and supervising producer Josh Thane. And executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs>